Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Anne Michaels. On her latest novel, Held. Anne Michael's books have been translated into more than 45 languages and have won dozens of international awards, including the Women's Prize for Fiction, back when it was the Orange Prize, the Guardian Fiction Prize, the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction, and the Commonwealth Poetry Prize for the Americas. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and many other honours. She has been shortlisted for the Governor General's Award and the Griffin Poetry Prize, twice shortlisted for the Giller Prize, and twice longlisted for the Impact Award. Her novel Fugitive Pieces was adapted into a feature film. From 2015 to 2019, she was Toronto's Poet Laureate. And today we're here to talk about Anne's latest novel, which is Held. Anne, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. First of all, can you tell me how you would describe Held? Ah, <laughs> well, I'll begin by saying that every day in the writing of this book, which took years, I asked myself two questions. One was, what do we need now? And the other was, how small does a voice have to be to be heard? And so the question of what we need now, in thinking about the question, what do we need now? Uh, I knew that I would have to not look at the present moment in the sense of writing the present moment, but instead tell the story through uh, various times and places, very precisely chosen, because I think we naturally uh, defend ourselves uh, against the present, or we have uh, immediate or knee-jerk reactions to, to the present, to discussions of the present. And I wanted to actually bring us as close as possible to what's happening now. And the way to do that was to go at it through very precise times and places of the past. So the book uh, spans over a century and uh, could have been written, of course, as an epic if you're spanning a century. But instead, I wanted to do the opposite, to make a book that was extremely spare, spare and precise. I'm using that word again. And so I, I began thinking about what seemed to me a very significant turning point at the beginning of the last century, which 
was uh, the beginning of science to penetrate the invisible world and the technology to perceive through the eye of the machine what the naked eye could not see, beginning with x-rays to experiments in particle physics, where not only were we perceiving that invisible world, but beginning to manipulate it. And this, I think one could say, began to change the narrative, perhaps foreclose another narrative, an ancient narrative about how we perceive the invisible. Because humankind has always had a relationship, a very powerful relationship to the invisible, to what we cannot know, what necessarily we cannot know or prove. And this book argues that there is a value to uh, recognizing that and a value to that relationship to invisibility that we seem to be being persuaded to move away from. And connected to that is the invisibility of our inner lives. We think of history as uh, events and actions, but this book wants to assert a different measure for history, the real and powerful effect of our, of our inner lives what we believe, what we value, what we aspire to, what we aspire to as a culture, a society, a species, uh, very important now in these times, especially thinking about climate catastrophe. So the relationship between the invisible, also the personal, the private, and larger historic events has always interested me and is interesting me very particularly in this novel. And indeed, there are real historical scientists that are, some are mentioned early on in the book, but then literally appear in the story towards the end of the book as well, Ernest Rutherford, Marie Curie. And there was somebody I wanted to ask you about, um, Hertha Ayrton, who is a real-life scientist, but one is less well-known than those other ones. She was a friend of Marie Curie. So tell us something about who she was. Oh, Herta Ayrton is, uh, I was so happy to bring her into this book, where she appeared to me to want to be in this book. And um, she was a mathematician. She was married to a physicist, as Marie Curie was. She was also a suffragist. She very politically active. And she had a very intimate uh, friendship with Marie Curie. And that Friendship interested me very much. Two women in a very male-dominated world of science at the time. And I could not resist. Once I learned that Herta, in fact, saved Marie Curie in a way, because uh, Marie had, after her husband's death, had begun an affair with the married scientist Paul Langevin and uh, was uh, absolutely uh, trounced for this affair. She was hounded to the point of discrimination. And uh, so Herta said, you know, come to me in England. So she disguised herself, Marie Curie disguised herself and uh, crossed the channel and spent August a month with Herta. And she was there with her children. And it was irresistible to me to imagine what that month was together, what their friendship was. And it was important to me also not to be presenting those women as figures of science, as one might, uh, emblematic of something. I wanted to present them as women. And I wanted very much to explore, fictionally, of course, 
how they thought, their thinking, because we humanize people, you know, in many ways in fiction. But to me, it was very important to get into the minds and the thinking processes of these characters right from the start when the character John is, is on a battlefield in France in 1917. We are, I wanted to introduce you to him very much through his thought processes. And uh, so there was uh, a joy in, in trying to imagine the relationship between Marie and Herta. And so like the history in the book, which took a lot of research and the science and history and philosophy of science that took a lot of research. I wanted those, the history and the science to be not overt, to be um, somehow just glinting below the surface or at the edges. So even though the book is saturated in research, I, I didn't want that to be overt. And again, in that meeting between the women and in their conversations, in that time and place, it's not overt, but but very much there. And as you said, this is a time, the book is beginning in a time when, you know, x-rays are being discovered. Scientists are starting to understand, you know, the concepts of, you know, the atom and stuff and the invisible world. It's also a time when, on the other side of that, everybody's fascinated by seances and, you know, spiritualism and trying to contact the dead and there will literally be ghosts in this novel which we will talk about later on but I just wanted to wonder if and this is a bit of a stretch perhaps but also to what extent is this sort of like exploration of sort of scientists looking into the invisible connected to the fact that the structure of the book goes backwards and forwards in time oh absolutely um the structure was very um very precisely chosen I I I wanted us to surface and resurface, to dive and resurface through time. And for several reasons. One is the, the reason that you suggest, and also that to show that the effects of a lifetime, the work of love carries on past the span of a single human life. And so, and I also wanted to, to demonstrate somehow that these lives are full to the brim. They are brimming over, and we can never summarize a life. Uh, the book doesn't want to summarize those lives. They want to enter into the middle of a life with all its intensity, and then move to to another another set of characters, so that we have a sense of of the fullness of life and the, those lives going on after we move to the next section. So the the ghosts in the book and the carrying on that idea of invisibility is also very strongly connected to the First World War. Of course, all this was going on at the same time. This rise of spiritualism, the war, this uh, investigation into the invisible by science, and the, the rise of spiritualism at that time, of course, is so uh, heartbreakingly understandable because that war was unprecedented in the magnitude, the scale of death. And so there were, the world was flooded with ghosts and families also unprecedented. Families wanted, they couldn't have their live son return, but they wanted the bodies returned. But unprecedented at that time was the scale and numbers of bodies that 
disappeared, that simply were dismembered beyond distinction. So there was no body to return. And the scale of death, of course, meant that it was too difficult to return, wouldn't have even been able to return the dead to repatriate them. But there was literally no body to bury. So this idea of the unknown soldier, this idea of the dead in this way uh, was a very powerful motivator for that rise of spiritualism, which was, of course, heartbreakingly understandable. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anne Michaels, and we're talking about her new novel, Held. And Anne, you mentioned the novel begins with John, the character, lying injured in France during the First World War. And the format of the book is very short passages separated by asterisks, which form John's memory. And some of those are him seeing what he can see around him and from that limited perspective in a you know, in a shell hole. Um, some of them are memories back to to meeting another character, Helena. And then that becomes then the format of the book for the rest of the book, although the passages become longer, but they are still fragmentary, but never again, I guess, as much fragmentary as at that beginning with John's memories. I wanted to talk about this method of writing the book and obviously how how your work as a poet has obviously influenced that. 
Well, there's a there's a real desire here to for because these sections are discrete, uh, although of course profoundly interwoven and interconnected. I wanted a certain intensity, which also reflects this idea of bringing you know what forces bring us to a present moment. So in that first section, uh, when John's on the battlefield and as you say. He's wounded and his perspective physically is, is limited. He can see the shadow of a bird crossing the hill, but he, he can't see the bird. So he's drifting, as you say, from the here and now to, uh, to the past, to memory, to just his thoughts are moving through time. So that episodic telling seemed very right as someone drifts in and out of consciousness and in and out of the past and the rest of the book uh yes as you say the passages get longer and longer uh but that fragmentation is trying again and again to be clear about what a present moment holds and i want us to get again and again and again close to an idea close to feeling in an idea, hopefully uh, optimally at the same time, and to create space for the reader to bring their own life to the book, to think and feel. So creating that space for the reader was also very much part of this fragmentary way of telling. And so it's, it's an accumulation of intense moments. And so again and again, I'm just trying to get to the heart of something. So we're looking at it um, in one way, in another way, in a third way. So they're looking at in each way, but also in how all these ways are connected. So that's really part of the reason for the way the story is told. The book features lots of characters, some in detail, some just fragmentary mentions but always there's this sort of spine of the women of this one family so helena who we've already mentioned who is john's wife and then their daughter anna anna's daughter maya and then maya's daughter another anna and so i just wanted to talk about at least a couple of these women so helena first of all tell us something about who she is helena is as you say married to john and uh, they, uh, John's a photographer, and uh, they, uh, he returns from war, and uh, they uh, live above the photography studio. And she paints and chalks uh, the backgrounds. You'll remember those amazing Victorian backgrounds in uh, old photographs, like a stage set for the photos for the sitters. And uh, so she is an artist and she creates these backdrops. So I don't want to give too much of the story away. We see her before they marry. We see her uh, when John returns from war. We see her in the 1950s. And uh, there's a, quite a leap in her character, in who she becomes, or the kind of woman she is. And again, it was a pleasure to write a scene, uh, a section in which you really reach into the heart of, of who she is. Her daughter, Anna, we know has become, um, we see her doing medical training, moving away. And then we 
we lose her from the book. We know that she is gone because um, her husband, Peter, Maya's father, tells us this. Um, but we, we don't really know what's happened, but we know that it's something to do with war. And Maya, her daughter, becomes a doctor and is a doctor in a war zone um, where she meets her husband, the journalist, Alan. And you mentioned earlier on that, you know, when you're writing this book you try not to write the present moment in this book, but you know, I, I hope you don't mind me saying that I found these chapters about Maya incredibly hard to read and then put the book down and come and put the TV on and see the news because it felt so, your writing felt so vivid about those moments. Tell us something about Maya. Well, she's, uh, yes, is a doctor in a war zone and uh, like her mother was. And so we have this relationship between mother and daughter. The mother dies when Mar is quite young and the daughter chooses to do what the mother did, chooses the same work. And uh, so we have Peter's relationship to both the wife and the daughter and his relationship to their involvement, personal, physical involvement in war. So she makes a choice in this book which I, I don't want to divulge, uh, which to me is a very poignant moment. So she is, I'm glad you, I'm glad you had to close the book. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that you returned to the book. And I'm, I'm always saying that, you know, when I write, I'm, I'm hoping to slow the reader right down and not to the point of abandoning the book, but to, you know, being able to inhabit it and pause and uh, so I'm glad that was that was your experience. Yes, again, you know, each character is uh, trying to be very precise about a way of being in the world and also as a way of understanding how other lives form our own lives, how, you know, her mother long gone has informed her life. and. So, again, there's just this precision in her particular set of questions, her particular way of thinking about how she should be in the world. What is expected of us? What do we expect of ourselves? What do we believe, again? What matters? What do we value? What do we aspire to? And um, we don't often allow ourselves the space, the moment, the courage, the conviction to address fundamental questions and so she she embodies very much as do all the characters a glimpse into how should we be in the world how should she live so finishes off then can i get you to read us a bit oh yes um this is a there's so many different aspects of the book there's um, lots of um, there's discussion about evolution and the way of that way of speaking about time, um, which we we didn't get uh, into. There's many places I could start from in this book, but I think I'm going to just read a section that deals with a single encounter with death and gives you a small taste of the science as well. The character is a woman named Leah. It is 1910. It is so France. And she is walking outside of the city and she meets a 
photographer who is uh, whose head is underneath the skirts of one of those heavy bellows cameras, and uh, they begin to have a conversation. And this is part of that encounter. She had heard that Mr. Darwin had taken a thinking walk every day, a long loop around his garden. He liked to keep track of the distance, but did not want to be distracted by having to count the number of circuits he walked. So he kept a pile of stones at the beginning of the path and kicked one aside each time he passed, and then simply counted the stones in the new pile at the end. To be lost in thought without losing one's place and without losing one's way. She imagined the increment of slow change, the patience of a single feature declaring itself over generations, color seeping into fur, a shape of bone or keratin carved by time and necessity, the powerful persuasion of use and scale, shade and shape, as if an accumulative wisdom. Everything we see reveals this persistent judiciousness, the winnowing consideration of millennia, the shape of a tooth, a hand, hair, loss of hair, fin, leg, gills, lungs, the slow choice of air or water, light or dimness, lightning crackling across the infinitely deep canyons of our brains, the formation of our senses embedded in everything we see and know and feel, the accumulation over millennia of minute perceptions, primordial winters, eclipses, equinoxes, avalanches, harvests, Iron Age rain, the Little Ice Age, and now, animated within her, the splendor of contemplating changes that no one lives to see. Everything was permanent, nothing was permanent as if there was only one context where one could use the word indelible in the span of a single human life. Do you have any of your photographs with you that I could see? There may be one or two in my bag. She looked at his photographs of streets and shop fronts, shop windows of mannequins dressed up and waiting for an event that never happens, details of ironwork, staircases, door latches, there were streets she recognized that she knew had disappeared. Every feature of the plangent stillness. She could not tell if the melancholy was inherent to what had been photographed or to the photographer or to the act of photography itself. It was something about possession, she thought, about acknowledging what can never belong to you, how we have no right to that nostalgia, and yet seeing creates a memory or confers a memory or confirms a memory. She would have to think about it later. Why are the streets always deserted, she asked. If you hold open the shutter long enough, everything moving disappears or leaves only a trace, a clouding of the air, a thickening of the light, the breath of absence. She thought several things then, that a photographer's entire life's work would add up to only a few minutes of time, and that one could make a long exposure say, 30 years of married life or family life in a kitchen, infants growing to adults, and all that the photographic plate would show was an empty room. But it would not be empty. Instead, it would be full of life, invisible and real. And then she thought, someday she would look in the mirror and see only the empty room behind her. And then, 
with a very, very long exposure, say perhaps eternity, perhaps we reappear. So I've been talking to Anne Michaels. We've been talking about her new novel, Held, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.